Hello, caller, you're on the air. Well, the midterms are over, and now we're just waiting to see if the ones we elected were worth the vote. Yeah, I suppose only time will tell. Scary people are drawn to powerful positions. In the 19th century, when doctors first gained respect and notoriety, there were those who abused that newfound power. Come on, doctors aren't scary. Well, doctors are people. They're sworn to uphold the Hippocratic Oath, and like any promise, there are those who break the oath for nefarious reasons. May they be sadistic, insane, or downright evil. Here are four deadly doctors. Warning. What you're about to hear is true. At Hookswitch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Rapid advances in medicine made doctors powerful and respected men in the 19th century, but some used their high social position to gratify their lust and greed, like Dr. Deschamps, whose misuse of 12-year-old Juliette Deitch horrified New Orleans. The nine-year-old girl was sobbing so violently that her father couldn't understand a word she said. He shook her impatiently. Where is Juliette? The girl controlled herself for a moment. She's asleep and the doctor says she's going to die. The father, Jules Deitch, rushed through the streets to the house where Dr. Etienne Deschamps was lodging. The door of his room was locked. Deitch ran to the police station and begged the police to help him break in. He said, I think my 12-year-old daughter is in there. She was. When the police entered the room, Juliet was lying naked on the bed. Beside her, also naked, lay a large, hairy man with a beard. Blood was streaming from wounds in his chest, but he was still alive. The girl was dead. It was the beginning of one of the most sensational murder trials in the history of New Orleans. When the body of Juliet Deitch was examined, it was discovered that she'd been raped and that she'd been sexually abused in other ways. There were even bite marks on her body. And as the evidence made clear, this had not happened just once, but dozens of times over the course of months. Dr. Deschamps was obviously the worst kind of sexual predator. How had the respectable carpenter, Jules Deitch, come to allow his daughter to fall into the hands of this monster? Deitch had met Dr. Deschamps in 1888, when Deschamps had told him that he was an expert in the occult. He said he possessed hypnotic powers, and he intended to use them to discover the lost treasure of the pirate Jean Lafitte. All he needed, he said, was the help of a pure young girl to act as a medium. Deitch was so impressed by the 50-year-old doctor that he had no hesitation in entrusting Juliet to his care. In fact, both of his daughters, because Juliet's young sister Lawrence was fascinated by the doctor and didn't want to be left out. Deitch was so impressed by the 50-year-old doctor that he had no hesitation in entrusting Juliet to his care. In fact, both of his daughters, because Juliet's young sister Lawrence was fascinated by the doctor as well and didn't want to be left out. Later, Juliet's sister Lawrence described the experiments. Juliet would be told to undress and climb into bed. She was an unusually well-developed child for her age, although she had not yet reached puberty. The doctor would also undress and climb in beside her. He would soak a clean handkerchief in chloroform and place it over her face. The doctor always made the girls promise not to tell their father exactly what had happened. So things had continued until the afternoon of January 30th, 1889, when Dr. Deschamps had suddenly begun to sob in French, quote, my God, what have I done? Then Lawrence, who was terrified, was told to run home and tell her father that the doctor was going to die. But the doctor did not die. The stab wounds he inflicted on his chest were too superficial to endanger his life. It was a sham injury. It had been a calculated self-inflicted injury. It was obvious to everybody that Juliet's death was accidental. To everybody, at least, 
but the prosecutor. He alleged that Dr. Deschamps had deliberately killed the girl because he knew that his sexual abuses would soon be discovered. This was obviously absurd, since killing her was the sure way to discovery. On the other hand, Deschamps was more cunning and calculating than he let on. The police found letters in his room written by Juliet and signed, Your Love Forever and Your Little Mistress. Juliet, however, was illiterate and could not have composed the letters. Deschamps had written them and got her to copy them out so he could claim she had been willingly seduced. But if she was willing, why chloroform her? Besides, the letters had also mentioned a jeweler in the neighborhood called Charlie and implied that he had been the man who had originally taken Juliet's virginity. But Charlie was proven to be innocent. Again, Deschamps was covering his tracks. Why should he, argued the prosecutor, unless he meant to kill her? The Deschamps case, which ended with the doctor being hanged, gained nationwide coverage in the American press. This was not simply because of the sensational nature of the crime. It was because Deschamps was a doctor. It was a curious fact of criminal history that doctors who commit murder excite more interest than almost any other type of criminal. The usual explanation for this is that doctors are supposed to save lives, not take them. But that supposes that the public are more interested in morality than they actually are. The true explanation is that the doctor is a symbol of middle class respectability. In earlier centuries, people felt that same morbid interest in priests who committed crimes, hence the excitement aroused by the trial of Father Urbain Grandier. Burned alive in 1634 on the charge of having seduced and bewitched a convent full of nuns, the great age of medicine was the 19th century. It was also the great age of the medical murderer. Yet the company of killers had one distinguished predecessor of the 18th century. Dr. Levi Whale, whose strange story helps to explain why the medical murderer was such a latecomer on the criminal scene. Dr. Whale, a Dutch immigrant, came to London from Holland in the 1760s. The London of Dr. Johnson, the actor David Garrick, and the statesman Edmund Burke. London then was full of disease and most doctors were constantly busy. But this Jewish doctor with a foreign accent encountered a certain amount of prejudice and his practice remained small. One day, a merchant asked Vale if he would travel out to Enfield, outside London, to attend to his sister because a regular doctor was ill. Vale drove to the village, attended to the old lady with some success, and then ate supper with the brother, who paid him in cash. All the way home, Vale thought about the house full of money and jewelry and determined to take some of it for himself. In London, he said goodbye to the merchant and promptly made his way back to Enfield. When he finally reached home at daylight, he was exhausted, but some 90 pounds richer, more money than he had made in months. Ironically, Vale's practice began to improve as his income from burglary soared to 500 pounds a month. He kept his medical practice open, knowing it was his best disguise. He entered the houses of wealthy patients, surveilled the premises, and passed on the information to a gang run by his brother. On one occasion, he heard that an old caretaker who lived near St. Paul's Cathedral had his life savings hidden in his room. Other burglars had already broken in, but although they had pried up every floorboard and ripped plaster off the walls, they'd been unable to locate the money. Vale was called to the old man's bedside when he was ill. He tried to persuade the caretaker to go to the hospital, leaving him alone with the old man. But the caretaker was having none of it, and that convinced Vale that the money was hidden somewhere in that room. The floor and the walls had been explored, so it had to be the ceiling. A big beam crossed the room. Vale examined it when the caretaker was asleep and found a cavity. Two nights later, as the old man slept heavily from one of the doctor's sedatives, Asher Vale and an accomplice took nearly 3,000 pounds from the hiding place in the beam. The old man never discovered the robbery. He died a few days later. This may have been Vale's first murder. By then, the gang had swelled to eight. 
One of the members, a German named Isaacs, tried to conceal more than his share of the booty and was dismissed. That was Vale's first mistake. Not long after, he would make his second mistake. In the autumn of 1771, the gang, including Vale himself, waited until after dark in the vicinity of a house in Chelsea Fields. In those days, Chelsea was a village outside London. When all the lights were out, they knocked loudly. The servant who opened the door was overpowered. The lady of the house, a Mrs. Hutchings, fought strenuously, but was tied with her own dress. In the upper part of the house, the gang burst into a bedroom, and two servants who had been asleep woke up alarmed. One was knocked out quickly. The other, as he struggled, was shot with a pistol. After that, the gang fled with their loot. Unfortunately for them, the servant, John Slow, died. Now the authorities were determined to offer a reward for this gang, and Isaacs, the man who'd been dismissed, saw his opportunity for revenge. He knew that if he turned evidence, he would be safe. Vale was planning his most ambitious robbery so far, of a diamond merchant, expecting a consignment of 40,000 pounds worth of jewels. When Vale was placed under arrest, Six of the gang were tried in court, two were acquitted for lack of evidence. But Vale and his brother were among those executed at Tyburn on December 9, 1771. The next notable name in the role of medical infamy is that of Dr. Edme Castang of Paris. At the age of 27, Dr. Castang enjoyed the good life and didn't look forward to the lifetime of drudgery that he considered that to be of a general practitioner. One of his patients was a wealthy man named Hippolyte Ballet who had tuberculosis. Castang became friendly with Hippolyte's younger brother, Auguste. Dr. Castang became friendly with Hippolyte's younger brother, Auguste, and learned that the brothers were on bad terms, so bad that Hippolyte had excluded his brother from his will. One evening, as they drank together, Auguste hinted that Castang might hasten his brother's death and gain possession of the fortune. So, on October 22, 1822, Hippolyte quite suddenly died to the astonishment of other doctors who had occasionally attended him. A month later, Dr. Castang paid off all his debts and lent his mother 300,000 francs. The following year, on June the 2nd, Dr. Castang and Auguste Ballet went for a drive in the country and stopped at a hotel in St. Cloud, where they ate and drank. Then Auguste was suddenly taken ill and soon died, attended by his friend Dr. Castang and two other doctors. The other doctors recognized the signs of morphine poisoning, and they discovered that even after Ballet had started to vomit, Castang had gone to a local pharmacist and bought more morphine. When it was discovered that Ballet had made Castang a benefactor of his will, Dr. Castang was arrested. Dr. Castain was relying on the fact that morphine was very difficult to detect and almost impossible to prove, and he was proved to be right. Although the doctors agreed that Auguste Ballet had shown all the signs of morphine poisoning, vomiting, diarrhea, heavy breathing, contraction of the pupils, no trace of morphine could be positively detected in his stomach. The persecutor asked indignantly if all murderers who used morphine should be allowed to go free just because medical science was unable to detect its presence. That statement swung the jury. Dr. Castain was sentenced to death and executed in December 1823, all the while proclaiming his innocence. The next medical murder of any note took place in the peaceful environment of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, more than a quarter of a century later. Like so many medical murderers, Professor John Webster, 56, was given to living beyond his means. He frequently borrowed money from a wealthy friend, Dr. George Parkman. But Parkman ceased to be friendly when he learned that Webster's famous mineral collection, which Webster had pledged to him as security for a loan, had also been pledged to another creditor. The angry Parkman threatened exposure. 
On November 23, 1849, Parkman failed to return home from lunch, and the river was dredged in case he had drowned. In fact, Parkman had called on Webster in his laboratory, and as he turned to go out, Webster had struck him so hard on the back of the head with a piece of wood that Parkman died instantly. Later on, Webster alleged that Parkman had been so insulting that he had hit him in a blind rage, but all the evidence indicates a cool head and careful planning. Later the same day, Webster told an agent who collected his lecture fees that he had repaid Parkman, and that night, behind locked doors, he proceeded to dismember the body and burn it in its medical furnace. Two days after Parkman's disappearance, Webster called on his family and told them that he had repaid Parkman a few hours before his disappearance. Surely this proved that Parkman had been killed by a robber who had concealed the body. Unfortunately for Webster, Littlefield, the caretaker at the medical school, hated him. Littlefield wondered why the doctor worked all night in his laboratory and kept his furnace burning all that time. Whenever Webster left the laboratory, he would take care to double lock the door, but Littlefield had a plan. The furnace was built against a wall, and there was a passageway on the other side. With his wife standing guard, Littlefield broke through the wall with a crowbar, shone his torch through, and saw a bone which he recognized as a human pelvis. At his trial, which lasted 11 days and got national press coverage, Webster pleaded not guilty. He contended that the bones in the furnace were not Parkman's at all, just the remains of a body that they had been using for dissection. But a dentist positively identified the false teeth as Parkman's, and Webster's defense collapsed. Before he was hanged in August 1850, he confessed to killing Parkman in a fit of rage. The murder of Parkman was the beginning of what might be called the Great Age of Medical Murderers. It lasted for about a hundred years from approximately 1855, the year in which Dr. William Palmer of Rugley poisoned his racetrack associate John Cook, to 1954, when Dr. Sam Shepard of Ohio was found guilty of murdering his wife. Studying the killers, an interesting point emerges. A great majority of the medical murderers were of questionable character given to lying, boasting, and to living well beyond their means financially. And this implies that many of them were drawn to the medical profession in the first place to satisfy their own vanity, the self-esteem urge. This was perhaps most obvious in the case of the Glasgow prisoner, Dr. Edward Willem Pritchard. In photographs, he looks like a typical Victorian doctor, with his frock coat and bushy beard, surrounded by what at the time would be called a respectable-looking family. In fact, he was an utterly duplicitous character. A joke among his colleagues because of his incredible boasting and lying. He claimed to be a friend of the Italian patriot Giuseppe Giribaldi, although they had certainly never met. A typical narcissist, he was fond of presenting people with photographs of himself. He even handed one to a stranger he met on the train. He gave lectures, mostly invented, in which he described himself as an intrepid traveler and hunter. He also regarded himself as a great lover and seduced his household staff and anyone else who would entertain him. In 1863, when he was 38, a fire broke out in the room of one of his housekeepers. She was found dead, and it seemed clear that she had made no attempt to leave her bed during the fire. Pritchard was widely suspected, but he nevertheless won a claim from an insurance company. In 1864, he made another housekeeper, aged 15, pregnant, but performed an abortion. And it may have been desire to marry her that led him to start poisoning his wife Mary, to whom he'd been married for nearly 20 years. In November 1864, she became ill, vomiting, dizzy. A doctor called in by Pritchard suspected she was being poisoned and wrote to Mary Pritchard's brother suggesting that she should be moved into the hospital. The result was that Mary Pritchard's mother, Mrs. Taylor, decided to come and nurse her daughter. Soon Mrs. Taylor was suffering from the same symptoms. She died on February 24, 1865 and Mrs. Pritchard followed her a month later. 
Dr. Pritchard provided both certificates of death, stating that Mrs. Taylor had died from apoplexy and that his wife of gastric fever. But someone wrote an anonymous letter to the police, and Pritchard was promptly arrested. When the bodies were exhumed, both were found to have been saturated with a poison, which Pritchard was proved to have bought. We could find no more records of medical murderers from England since the 1880s. America, on the other hand, has produced many more. There was Dr. Milton Bowers of San Francisco, who almost certainly poisoned three of his wives, but who succeeded in persuading a jury to acquit him in 1888 and lived happily with another wife until 1905. Most ambitious of all was Dr. Clark Hyde of Kansas City, who decided in 1909 to poison no less than seven relatives who stood between him and the fortune of Thomas Swope, the millionaire founder of Kansas City. Hyde was married to Swope's niece, Frances. In October that year, Swope and his financial advisor, James Hunton, died, apparently from natural causes. Shortly afterwards, Hyde procured several test tubes of diphtheria and typhoid germs, claiming he intended to take up the study of bacteriology. Five assorted brothers and sisters-in-law then fell ill, and Hyde told them it was typhoid fever. Chrisman Swope died after Hyde administered a capsule and other members of the family showed symptoms of typhoid fever. When Hyde left on a trip to New York, all the patients improved considerably, which confirmed the suspicion of the nurses and the doctor who was responsible for their illness. Hyde then made a curious mistake, walking along a lamplit street. He took something out of his pocket and stamped in into the snow. One of the brothers-in-law saw him and investigated. He picked up a broken capsule and recognized the odor as potassium cyanide. The body of old Thomas Swope was exhumed and cyanide was found in it. Hyde was tried and found guilty, but he had money enough to appeal to a whole series of higher courts. In 1917, he was freed. Since the trial of Sam Shepard in 1954, the SS Montrose was a British merchant steamship built in 1897. Everyone aboard the SS Montrose considered a particular couple to be a most considerate and devoted pair, the father and son who were traveling to start a new life in Canada. Mr and Master Robinson, to use the names they gave to the purser aboard the steamship, were never seen apart, and although they were very polite and agreeable, they spoke to no one unless they had to. During the day, they sat together on deck, chatting quietly about the sea, the weather, and the marvels of the recently installed Marconi wireless aerial, which cracked above their heads, sending messages both ways across the Atlantic. At mealtimes, their concern for each other was even more marked made an inordinate fuss of the boy, a shy, delicately built youth who appeared to be in his mid-teens. Mr. Robinson was quick to crack nuts for his son, to help him cut up his meat, and to give him half of his own helping of salad. Master Robinson thanked his father in a low, gentle voice, and ate his food quietly. But as the voyage continued, one person on the ship found the Robinsons a little too loving to be true. Captain Kendall's suspicions were first aroused when he noticed that Master Robinson's trousers were too large for his slender body and were held in place by means of a large safety pin. Added to that, there was the slouch hat which sat somewhat incongruously on the top of the boy's long brown hair. But what really set the captain thinking was the regularity with which Mr. Robinson kept on fondling his son, squeezing his hand, and kissing him tenderly on the cheek. Captain Kendall was an avid newspaper reader and knew that the Daily Mail was offering a reward of £100 for the information concerning the whereabouts of the suspected wife killer, Dr. Haley Harvey Crippen. Crippen was said to be on the run with his mistress, Ethel Lee Nev, and Scotland Yard detectives were on their trail. 
According to the press, American-born Dr. Crippen, who stood at only 5 feet 4 inches, could be identified by a sandy mustache, balding hair, gold-rimmed glasses, and false teeth. Except for the teeth, which Captain Kendall had not been able to examine, this was a perfect description of the man calling himself John Philip Robinson. On the second night out from Antwerp, the captain made a point of inviting the Robinsons to dine at his table. The ship's captain was at his best, cracking jokes, telling humorous naval stories, making Mr. Robinson open his mouth and throw his head back in laughter. Under cover of the merriment, the captain looked closely at his guest's undeniably false teeth. When the joviality had died down and the meal was over, Captain Kendall excused himself, hurried to the wireless room, and sent out an urgent radio message to the authorities in London. Quote, have reason to believe Dr. Crippen and Miss Lee Nev are traveling as passengers on my ship. They are posing as father and son and should reach Quebec on July 31st. Await instructions. Kendall, end quote. The year was 1910 and it was the first time in criminal history that such a message had been sent by wireless. It was sufficient to make Chief Inspector Walter Dew of Scotland Yard book a passage on the Laurentic, a faster vessel than the Montrose, and one which would reach Canada before her. For the rest of the voyage, the captain kept the suspect couple under close surveillance. If Crippen knew he was being watched, he gave no outward sign of it, and nor did he look like the kind of man who was soon to appear at the Old Bailey accused of murdering and mutilating his wife, Cora. The marital problems of Howley Harvey Crippen began some while after he and his wife left New York, where he practiced as a doctor and came to live at 39 Hilldrop Crescent, Camden Town in North London. At the time, Crippen was employed as the manager of an American patent medicine company with an office in London's Shaftesbury Avenue. By 1907, seven years after their arrival, the 45-year-old physician found that his wife was beginning to irritate him in two deadly ways. First of, all, there were, first of all, there were constant and steadily increasing sexual demands which took more out of him than he was willing to give. Then, and even worse, there was her grandiose ambition to become an opera star. As a classical singer, Cora, or Bella Moore as she called herself professionally, made a fairly indifferent chorus girl. Despite lack of support from her husband, this did not prevent Cora from joining and becoming treasurer of the Music Hall Ladies Guild. In comparison to these creative characters, Dr. Crippen seemed even more mild-mannered and self-effacing. His place in Cora's bed was taken by an American entrepreneur, Bruce Miller, and he found himself reduced. To pay for her costumes, stage attire, and blonde wigs, Cora took in a succession of theatrical lodgers. Too lazy to look after these boarders herself, and too mean to employ a maid. She forced her husband to rise each morning at dawn. Outwardly uncomplaining, Crippen went down to the kitchen where he blackened the grate, cleaned out and set the fire, made the tea, and polished the pain guest boots. These tasks done, he left the house went to his office and consoled himself with the modest, undemanding love offered to him by Ethel Lee Nev, whom he recently engaged as a bookkeeper and secretary. Ethel, age 24 and unmarried, was everything Cora was not. Demure, understanding, sympathetic, and genteel. She cared for Crippen in a way Cora did not. Most important of all, she was the one person with whom he could discuss his shameful and humiliating home life. Three years passed in this way, with Crippen and Ethel meeting and consummating their love in cheap hotel rooms in London. 
By 1910, it was clear that things could not continue as they were. To satisfy Cora's sexual appetite, Crippen was still expected to act as a stand-in whenever she was without an admirer, and he took to staying her passion with hyosin, a poisonous drug used as a nerve depressant and hypnotic. On January 17th, he bought five grains of the narcotic from a chemist and two weeks later invited two of Cora's music hall friends, Mr. and Mrs. Paul Martinetti to dinner. The meal broke up at 1.30 on the morning of February 1st. The Martinettis said their goodbyes to Cora, who had been in typical form all evening, flattering her guests and speaking angrily to her husband. Although they did not know it, the Martinettis were not to exchange theatrical gossip with Cora again. A month afterwards, Crippen pawned some of his wife's jewelry for 80 pounds and wrote to the ladies' guild explaining that she could no longer attend their meetings as she had gone to stay with a sick relative in America. At the time, nothing was thought of this. Although eyebrows were raised when Ethelie Neb moved into 39 Hilldrop Crescent and was seen in the district wearing clothes and furs belonging to the absent Cora, in fact, Mrs. Crippen was not far away. Her fresh remains were buried in the cellar, wrapped in a man's pajama jacket containing quicklime, while her bones had been filleted from her body and burnt in the grate which her husband had spent so many hours cleaning on his hands and knees. On March 26th, Crippen inserted a notice of his wife's death in the Era magazine. Quote, she passed on of pneumonia. End quote. That's what he told the sympathizers. This story was accepted, and Crippen might well have been left to marry his Ethel and live lovingly afterwards. What happened next, however, is beyond rational explanation, unless his actions are viewed as an unconscious Freudian desire to draw attention to his crime and be caught. He took Ethel to a ball given by the Music Hall Ladies Guild, at which she prominently displayed a diamond clip, which had last been seen decorating Coral's chest. Reports of this tastelessness were passed on to Scotland Yard, and in July, Chief Inspector Dew visited Crippen at his home. The quietly spoken Dr. Crippen, the quietly spoken Dr. Crippen, then confessed that Cora was not lying in a grave on the west coast of America. She had, he claimed, run away with her old flame, Bruce Miller. The couple were living somewhere in America, and only pride had stopped him from publicly admitting this. This seemed a reasonable explanation, but even so, the inspector insisted on searching the house from cellar to attic. Apart from her gaudy clothes, no physical trace of Cora was found, and the detective went away satisfied. Crippen was not under any definite suspicion, and could have remained where he was without further interference from the police. He could not, however, believe that the inspector really accepted his story. Crippen felt he could be arrested at any moment and charged with the crime he had so painstakingly committed. To avoid this possibility, he obtained a boy's outfit for Ethel and fled with her to Rotterdam. On July 11th, while they were still in Holland, Inspector Drew returned to Hilldrop Crescent to check a date in the account of Cora's alleged desertion. To his surprise, he found that the house was empty and learned that Crippen and his housekeeper were not expected back. Drew immediately sensed that the building had at least one occupant, Cora, or whatever was discovered to be left of her. Pieces of flesh. This time, Dew's investigation included the digging up of the cellar and the uncovering of a man's pajama jacket, parts of a human buttock, pieces of skin, and bits of muscle, and chest and stomach organs. Although the remains were sexless, old scar tissue showed that the subject had undergone an abdominal operation. This tallied with what was little known of Cora, and on July 16th, a warrant was issued for the arrest of Dr. Crippen and Miss Lee Nev. 
Four days after this, without knowing that the search for them was on, they boarded the Montrose at Antwerp and began their extraordinary but unsuccessful deception as father and son. After Captain Kendall had sent his first radio message, he kept abreast of the developments as Inspector Dew and his sergeant sailed from Liverpool. Their ship forged ahead of the Montrose at the entrance to the St. Lawrence River. The Montrose arrived in Canadian waters early in the morning of July 31st. At 8.30 a.m., the pilot boat came alongside, and Dew and Sergeant Mitchell boarded the liner. They were accompanied by a chief inspector of the Canadian police and posed as river navigators. They were taken straight to Captain Kendall's cabin and there brought face-to-face -face with the self-styled John Philip Robinson. Dew wasted no time in bothering with questions of identity Chief Inspector Dew arrested Crippen for the murder of his wife, Cora Crippen, in London on or about February 2nd. In the arrest, Crippen made no reply, and Dew went out to find and charge Ethel. Dr. Crippen's trial at London's Old Bailey on October 18th was a world sensation. From the start, it was clear he had no chance of being acquitted. He seemed indifferent to his own fate, and his main concern was for Ethel, whom he swore knew nothing of Bell's murder. It was put to him by his counsel that he could explain away his purchase of the hyacinth. All he had to do was say he had administered the sedative to quiet his wife's excessive sexual appetite and excitability. He refused to do this, and the five-day trial ended in a unanimous verdict of guilty. Four days later, Ethel Nev was charged with being an accessory after the fact, but the case against her was soon demolished by the brilliant F.E. Smith, later Lord Birkenhead. He challenged the prosecution to prove that she was anything other than innocent. The case against her failed, and she was found not guilty and discharged. For Crippen, there was little left to live for, even if his neck was spared. Without Ethel, who disappeared without a trace from the public eye, he wished only to die and to do so quickly. He was hanged on November 23, 1910, and his last request was that her letters and a photograph of her should be buried with him. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hooks to a Hotline. Join us next week when we'll dive deep into more graphic true crime. Here's a preview. He fought hard to prove his innocence, and eventually, Dr. Sam Shepard was freed from jail. So who did batter his pretty wife to death and leave her slumped in her blood-spattered bedroom? With every crime, someone somewhere has information. That someone could be you. Email us at hookswitchhotline at gmail.com or leave a message at 415-448-7263.